We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw. We go tit for tat. We have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Moose and Runes podcast. This episode 231 of the pod alongside Matt Rooney. I am Joe Musso. And so we got a couple things to talk about here uh, from an Irish exit to the Bears back in action to the MLB hot stove bubbling over to Tiger Woods addressing the media to some locks to everything else we have to get to. Matt Rooney, how the heck are you? Joe, I just want to say it's it's been a fun five years, but as of five minutes ago, I, I accepted a 10-year, $95 million deal with Spotify, so that's I will a, be leaving, and you can record the podcast with whoever the hell you want to. That's understandable. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it's been not not even with just with Notre Dame, with Lincoln Riley and the USC thing. It's been probably the most chaotic 48 hours in the college football coaching carousel ever, and I don't think it's very close. No, I don't think that's an overstatement whatsoever, Matt. But um, I think uh, it does beg a broader question, a bigger picture question. I do want to start with some of the specifics here, uh, both with Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma to go to USC, the implications there. But uh, Brian Kelly, a little bit closer to home here in what felt like the year where his name was bounced around the least. You know, it felt like for the last five years, any opening, any high profile opening, it was, hey, maybe Brian Kelly, maybe Brian Kelly. This year, there are high profile openings, but we didn't necessarily hear as much Brian Kelly chatter. And as recent as a week ago, he rebuffed the idea of ever leaving Notre Dame because um, he kind of invoked Mike Tomlin there and said, Mm -hmm. you know, unless somebody comes to my door with $250 million, um, me and the misses we're staying put and here we are on the 30th of november talking about brian kelly the head coach of lsu for a a bang up deal to be fair but um sort of leaving in the middle of the night and and dropping his anchor elsewhere um lot to unpack here matt 12 years as notre dame's head coach finishes his career as the winningest coach in Notre Dame history, not Newt Rockney, not Eric Parsegian, not Lou Holtz, Brian Kelly is the winningest coach in Notre Dame football history. Those other guys have statues outside of Notre Dame Stadium, Matt. Uh, Brian Kelly was conceivably a national title away from a statue of his own, uh, did end up going to two college football playoffs and appeared in a BCS national title game, never got the win. Um, but it's just jarring because as a Notre Dame football fan, it felt like that was one thing you didn't have to worry about was the head coach. And now, once again, you're on the market shopping and worrying about the head coach. Um, I, I really, you know, I addressed this from a breaking news uh, standpoint yesterday and asked a lot of questions to a lot of people. You did a lovely job from the clips I saw, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. But um, it, it was just um, it was interesting to hear Brady Quinn talk about it and what the what the Notre Dame job offers and what the Notre Dame job means and some of the implications around it. Um, the big implication, as we saw with Lincoln Riley leaving, is recruiting, and that's that's if you can recruit, you got a team. If you can't recruit, you're not going to win many football games. This puts that into question. But the vote of confidence that Brady gave was, you know, the type of person that. Notre Dame recruits and Notre Dame's allowed to recruit is not the type of person that's going to run for the hills when the head coach leaves. Um, these Notre Dame players are insulated with some of the best assistants in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that 
that will, you know, keep a lot of guys in the building. Uh, but at the same time, the college football landscape is changing in front of our eyes. Coaches are leaving. Players are getting paid. The playoff might expand. Um, there's just so much happening all at once. It feels like we're uh, feels like we're getting a little out over our skis. But in terms of Brian Kelly, your initial reaction is what, Matt? There's so much to uh, you know to unpack, and even in your what you were saying there for the last minute and a half, like there's so many different points and things to talk about. I, I think my initial reaction was at first was I think shock. I think everybody was a little bit shocked. Um, he did just have that quote from Mike Tomlin, you know, the Mike Tomlin thing and you know, citing him and saying it would take, you know, a $250 million check. He didn't get $250 million, but he got like 100 plus incentives plus whatever he wants in terms of like, you know, facility upgrades, which probably equals how to, to come out with you know, close to $250 million, if not more. Um, so I, I guess I can't really blame him if, if that was the if he wanted to take that money and, and, and run and go there. That, that's fine. Um it just it seems like weird timing, not necessarily on the calendar, because if you're going to go take a new coaching job, especially in today's day and age, there is no more of this wait till after the season. You have to go there now and you have to start recruiting. Um, but in terms of, you know, he's a 60 year old guy who seemingly had pretty much all of the job security you could have ever, ever wanted here, had a fantastic spot. And now he's going into a program where the pressure is always on, but the fact that he has this contract, he has this money, he has these expectations, the, the seat's going to be hot, not, not in terms of getting, you know, let go, but the, the seat's going to be hot right away because people are going to expect him to come in and compete for a national championship and win a national championship next year because not only those expectations in the SEC, but those expectations are even more maxed out at LSU. Um, but in terms of recruiting, I, I saw your clip with Brady Quinn and I agreed with him a lot what he said. And I think in comparing this to the, the Oklahoma departure, um, Lincoln Riley was the driving force in recruiting for Oklahoma. He was their, the face of their recruiting pitch. He was the guy you know, who was the best recruiter on that staff and doing mm-hmm. his job. That was not the case here. That is not the case at Notre Dame. Marcus Freeman, and to a, I don't want to even say less percent Tommy Reese because Tommy Reese is a very good recruiter, but this recruiting, Notre Dame's recruiting renaissance that this year that sees them with the, as of right now, the number two class and number three class, depending on where you look next year, top five class the year after. Mm-hmm. That was never the case until Marcus Freeman got here. This had always been, you know, a top 10 recruiting class, top seven. Marcus Freeman has been the driving force for that recruiting renaissance here. And, and I think now Jack Swarbrick had a press conference this morning. Uh, he said they weren't naming an interim head coach, uh, which I, I, I guess that's fine. It's not like it really matters. They're not really sure if they're playing, if and when they're playing another game, uh, at least till you know, till a bowl game. But I, I do think that's probably the most logical route they're going to go here because in order to keep this recruiting class, these top five recruiting class, which some recruits have already come out and said, I, I think I saw the number 29 overall player in, in this year's class and offensive lineman said he's stick, sticking with Notre Dame. I think a lot of these players are going to end up sticking with Notre Dame, but in order to keep most of that class together and keep that momentum, I think promoting Marcus Freeman from within is the right move. And, and while – Notre Dame hasn't had the best success with with hiring uh, first time head coaches. Their program is in a much different position right now than it's ever been. And last time when they hired Brian Kelly, they needed a guy to rebuild a program. They don't need mm-hmm. that anymore. They need a guy to maintain a program, and that's yeah. that's what you've seen 
most of these big time programs kind of do it. Georgia went out, went outside and hired Kirby smart, but that's because they hired a, a coordinator in Kirby smart that, you know, they, they don't, they knew they didn't need to build a program. They needed to kind of maintain winning culture, but they had Oklahoma hired Lincoln Riley promoted him from within at age you know, with 34, 35. That turned out just fine. Dabo Swinney at Clemson, Ryan day at Ohio state. You don't need to go out and get the flashy hire. You need to go out and get the right guy. And I think while it's probably, I, I do think Marcus Freeman was always going to be the coach and waiting here. Uh, and, and while this timeline is probably going to have to be three or four years earlier than you'd have liked, um, I think the time is probably right now to, to just promote him, expedite the process. And if you have a learning year next year, that's okay. You got a really talented couple classes that can kind of grow with Marcus Freeman. Yeah, I think you make a great point there about Marcus Freeman, some other names that have been bossed around, obviously Luke Fickle, Matt Campbell. Um, I, I would entertain those two guys as well in terms of filling that position. But you state it clearly and you make a great point about the juncture that this program is at right now. It's not about starting over. It's about maintaining momentum, and Freeman might be the perfect guy to do that. You have um, Notre Dame players taking to social media and voicing their um, support of Marcus Freeman and voicing their want for him to be the next head coach. And, um, you know, it's not – you don't want to be the bitter ex-lover, but Brian Kelly as the Notre Dame head football coach, while he always – put the team in the best position to win or more times than not put the team in the best position to win. He never came off as the guy. He never came off as a player's coach. He's, he's long been regarded as a bristly character that everyone kind of puts that aside because everywhere he's gone, he's won. And that's great, and that's what Notre Dame needed. But maybe Notre Dame now needs a little bit more of a Lincoln Riley, a little bit more of, I'm going to not only coach the team on Saturday, I'm going to be sitting in the recruits' uh, living room on Monday, sitting in another recruits' living room on Tuesday, talking to these guys, how I know how to talk to these guys. And, And maybe that's what takes this program to the next level. Um, I, I think it's the timing of it all is what's most interesting to me or most jarring to me. Um, while I do understand LSU's uh, need to get this because, yeah, there's a massive seat open at Oklahoma that uh, mm-hmm. they're all eating off the same plate and trying to get the same names into their program. For Brian Kelly, for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, a week from today, you could find out that you have a place in the college football playoff. Now, the odds of that are not very good. The percentages on it are not very good. But we saw a crazy weekend of college football. Very realistic. We saw a crazy weekend of college football and rivalry weekend with Alabama almost falling to Auburn, uh, with Michigan absolutely blowing the doors off of Ohio State. With all that happened a week ago, nothing will surprise me in terms of game results this weekend. And there is a world where those game results lead to the Notre Dame Fighting Irish playing in the college football playoff with an interim head coach. It's just odd to me. It's it's a really, really weird thing um, for those guys to have to deal with, for fans to have to process, and for Brian Kelly to be okay with. I wonder how much Brian Kelly is struggling with this. It doesn't seem like much because apparently we all saw the text, or if you haven't seen the text, look it up on Twitter that he sent to the guys uh, mm-hmm. the night of the decision, that being Monday night. Um, it was a brief message about, hey, we're going to meet at 7 o'clock. I'm sorry that I that you guys had to find out this way. Well, they met at 7 o'clock. The meeting was done at 7-11. Brian Kelly was out of the goog at 7-23. Um, 
he was ready to roll. So he seems okay with this. Um, I can't speak for him. I can't speak to his emotions, but the timing of it all and the timing of what happened on Tuesday just kind of points to a guy who is ready to leave Notre Dame. And for that, Matt, I would ask you why, because a lot of people talk about the ceiling at Notre Dame and talk about the inability to recruit certain guys. I think a lot of that was dissolved uh, over yeah, the last Yeah, I don't think it's years. true anymore. It, it's just... not how it was in the 90s and the early 2000s where you could only get um, honor roll students and you can only there, – there is still a Notre Dame standard, but they are recruiting, they are recruiting the best players in the country and turning them into – what they believe to be not only the best on-field guys, but the best off-field guys that they can. And that's something the program can be proud of. But I just don't see the ceiling anymore that everybody's talking about. If the ceiling is going to the college football playoff twice in three years, it's a pretty damn good ceiling. Now break Mm -hmm. through that next little ceiling and win a national title. It's not like you're that far away from the ultimate goal. Maybe... That ceiling doesn't exist with Notre Dame, but it, I mean, it is possible that it might have existed with Brian Kelly. I, I'm not totally sure. I think you, you made a good point. It's Brian Kelly is this will probably make it even more so a, a polarizing figure amongst the Notre Dame fan base. I think everybody here, we liked him early, then didn't like him and then came around to him. And now it's kind of like, OK, fine. Like I. 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 I they, he got them as far as he could. As I, I truly think he got them as far as he could take them, and that is it's a very good spot. It's playoffs. It's a chance. But it always just kind of seemed like, and I know there was still a little bit of a talent gap, but even when there wasn't, it just it seemed like he was never up for the challenge when they really, really, really needed to be. Um, I mean, you look back, both playoff games, they just kind of got blown out of the water, never really had that much of a chance. Uh, you look at their their game. I did always. This one always sticks out to me. The the forty five fourteen loss at Michigan when they were very much mm. a playoff contender just kind of was wasn't really up to the challenge. I, I, I'm not sure Brian Kelly was. Is there a chance that with a with a top five recruiting class that you know they were going to they could have won a national title? Absolutely, but I don't think it would have been anything because of what Brian Kelly was doing. I think it's because they might have kind of lucked into one one year. I, I think. You're at that point now where you've, you've hit that ceiling, and I think most Notre Dame fans kind of agreed with that. Now, obviously, the next hire has to be right, and it has to be the right guy, and, and I, I, I do think that guy is Marcus Freeman eventually, even though it wasn't named you know named immediately. Uh, but there's, there's still room for growth, and at age 60, a, a guy that was a little bit stuck in his ways isn't the right way to say it because he did kind of change his entire coaching style, but... But he said he was, he's much more of a CEO, much more of a delegator, a little bit of a hands-off head coach, and that's fine. That worked for now. That helped rebuild the program. But now I think you might need to make them – now might not be the time that you wanted to go move to the next guy to, to get it over that hump, but there's still one more hurdle to get over. And Brian Kelly had a lot of those chances, and he kind of laid an egg in all of them. I, I know that he cost last year, and that was a big win and all that. But again – it's a home game against Clemson against their backup quarterback in, I, I don't want to call it a meaningless game, but meaningless, mm-hmm. but when you played Clemson for real, your team kind of turtled and Brian Kelly's teams in the biggest moments always kind of seem to turtle a little bit. And I think that's a lot of times because Brian Kelly coached more often not to lose than he did to win. 
And I don't think that's what wins you national championships. I think that is what wins you 16 straight games in November sometimes and, and gets you to 10 wins a year playing not to lose and playing to win. But I don't think that's what beats Alabama. And I don't think that's what beats Ohio State. And I don't think that's what beats Clemson come January. Um, it's just going to be uh, – I leave this with two thoughts. Thought number one is – Good luck to Brian Kelly in the SEC with LSU recruiting against those teams, playing against those teams, um, vying for not only a national title, but an SEC championship, which sometimes mm-hmm. is harder to win. My other thought is that next year is a very important season for Notre Dame football, that they do continue that momentum and they don't step backwards. Um, I, I leave this also wondering why still. I don't feel like I have a good answer as to why that's a greener pasture at LSU than it is at Notre Dame. The question of why is pretty plain to see when it comes to the Lincoln-Riley situation. And yes. When you look at Lincoln-Riley, not only the package that was reported in terms of the nine figures and the 24-7 private jet for his family and the $550,000 over asking price on both of his homes in Norman, Oklahoma, and the $6 million home that the school's buying for him in L.A., and the fact that you're going to be on the beach, and the fact that you get to coach in Los Angeles for one mm-hmm. of the most storied programs in history and try and bring that program back to prominence, something that you can do very easily, I think, because of the way you've recruited, because those recruits are going to follow you there, because the fact that you've recruited the West Coast so effectively from Norman, Oklahoma. But Mm -hmm. the number one why for Lincoln Riley is that man doesn't want to do exactly what Brian Kelly's about to have to go do, and that's play SEC football. Oklahoma will be in the SEC in the short term, whether that's next year, the year after that, or as the contract speaks to it in 2023. That's a tough task for anybody and everybody. It's not the Big 12. It's not drawn up whatever the schedule is you want as a, as an unaffiliated team like Notre Dame. It is SEC football, and I don't think Lincoln Riley was too keen on trying to move Oklahoma into the SEC and get that welcome party from those types of teams. Yeah, that uh, I, I totally agree. I think that while Oklahoma right now is, is the program's in as good of a spot as, as it's you know, probably ever been or healthy as a spot, whatever, Two or three years from now, that and they go into the SEC West most likely. Like I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know how the divisions are going to line up, but you're either going to find yourself in a division with Alabama and LSU or Georgia and Florida. Um, it made a whole lot of sense. It made a whole lot of sense that I can – he's already got you know a two five-star and one four-star from California that are very likely going to flip from Oklahoma and US to, to USC. Being, being at USC, if you're the right coach, is not – it's, it's very easy to recruit and keep kids home. Kids want to stay there. Kids want to go to USC. You just have to be the right coach, and Lincoln Riley is that coach. He's And tell I, me the Pac-12 is not for the taking right now. I, 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 exactly. I mean, I hate to say it. He's, gonna, he's going to run the Pac-12. He's probably going to have them to you know back to being a top-10 team, if not next year, two years from now. Just – I know there's probably there was more money at LSU. There were more facilities at LSU. They say recruiting Louisiana is if you're at LSU, you know the state of Louisiana is kind of a goldmine to recruit and all that kind of stuff. But for a 60 year old guy who's never really been that interested in recruiting, who 
I don't want to say I, I don't like saying Notre Dame's had easier schedules because I, I don't think like, they've never really taken the, the easy way out by playing FCS teams. They've always played at least teams with reputations. While the last couple of years, those schedules haven't panned out. Mm-hmm. Going into an SEC West schedule, there's there's not a break in there. You got to beat Nick Saban. You're expected to beat Nick Saban every single year. You, mm-hmm. you saw it last week, this week, or you saw it. Um, sorry, in rivalry week. Auburn was a six and five football team who played half that game with a backup quarterback on one leg, and they took Alabama to four overtimes. Like there's there's zero weeks off. Notre Dame, not that they I like to say that they had weeks off, but there were some weeks that you couldn't bring your best. You could bring not bring your best, and and you still come out on top. Like that doesn't happen in the SEC West of all divisions of all conferences. I hope he's up for the challenge. I, I'm sure he's going to do fine there. I just. I don't know if he's a guy that's ever going to get over that hump and win that national title because you could say you can't, like we talked about earlier, you can say you can't get the recruits you want here at Notre Dame, but the next two years, Notre Dame's recruiting class is ahead of LSU. They're number two and number four. Like, you can get the recruits here. I just, I think it had to do with money. I think it had to ter- do with, in terms of, of facilities. And I, other than that, I don't know, maybe just want a new challenge, but yeah, man, you, I hope he knows what he's getting himself into at LSU because he got himself into a cushy spot at Notre Dame where people kind of stopped asking questions, calling for jobs and all that stuff. Because I think the fan base here was largely happy with going to the playoff every other year and, and you know being an 11 win team all the time and having a chance that don't cut it at LSU. You can make the playoffs three years in a row, but if you lose those three semifinal games, they're going to be calling for your job. Yeah. I think that, uh, it's no doubt a tough road ahead for Brian Kelly trying to move the conversation here into Lincoln Riley and, how immediate you think those effects will start to be felt. Do you think that USC is a team that we're talking about a year from today being a college football playoff contender? Uh, I don't know about a year from today because I, I, they're going to get a lot of talented freshmen in there next year. They're going to have a very good recruiting class and all that kind of stuff. It's just going to be really hard to turn that over immediately. But I do think you see an immediate Pac-12 contender next year. Uh, probably a, a nine and three type team. I'm not sure they're going to mm-hmm. threaten for the college football playoff ASAP because I think the PAC 12 also has a hurdle to climb. That said, it, we know that certain schools and certain coaches give teams reputations with the college football playoff committee. And I think Lincoln Riley at USC means they're going to start getting the benefit of the doubt from the committee sooner rather than later, as opposed to, you know, an Oregon or a Utah or whatever, you know, PAC 12 team might be, you know, 11 and one or, or whatever. But no, I, I think next year is, I don't want to call it a rebuilding year because they're going to be a lot better in four and seven. But I think probably two years from now is when you start to see them being, you know, the top 10, top five team. I would tend to agree. The only thing that would make me think that we see them in the college football playoff conversation next year is, you know, we're talking about all these recruits. We're talking mm-hmm. about the decommitments. We're talking about guys from California that are in the future, five stars, four stars, ready to commit to Lincoln Riley. What about Caleb Williams? What about the quarterback who's shown that he can be a Heisman favorite? What about this kid who sort of took a, undefeated but underperforming Oklahoma team this year and made them exciting again. Yes, he was the quarterback for the lone loss of the season. I mean, going into last week for the second loss, but it was just, it was really, um, it was really apparent that he was the right guy to be the quarterback at Oklahoma. And it's Mm -hmm. apparent that no matter what uniform he puts on his back, that team is going to be good. We say it here all the time. If you have a quarterback, you have a chance. If Lincoln Riley gets Caleb Williams to come to USC next year and they just 
hook, line, and sinker, put that uh, put that system back into place, and um, and really continue the moment, momentum of what they were doing at Oklahoma at USC. I think you have a contender. Yeah, that, that's fair. If he gets the right guys or brings some people over from Oklahoma that he wants to, and that, that, that you might have a contender right away. And it is wild just to think how far we've come in college football from head coaches leaving the way they are to now also players can just do that in, in the snap of a finger. Like and Caleb Williams can go start at USC tomorrow if he wanted to. Or and maybe, that's the you know big I mean, picture. Next year. That's the big picture direction I want to go here next, Matt, before we move on um, in terms of college football with all of the changes that we've seen. NIL deals, coaches leaving in the middle of the night, uh, programs moving at the snap of a finger from conference to conference. Do you think that we have a little bit of a systemic problem in college football playoff? I, I don't know how to define it. I don't know how to put my finger on it, but I'm looking at it and it feels like something that's not sustainable. It feels like we're moving in the wrong direction very quickly. Now, I'm not saying don't pay the players or don't give them image and likeness. I'm not saying... Um, that these coaches don't deserve to go where they want and they should be mm-hmm. uh, shackled to a program for two decades, even if they can't win. But what I am saying is that all of this is happening in a 24 month period. And, and I just don't know that we're looking at the long term effects of what this means for these programs, uh, for these institutions, for these uh, checkbooks and for the boosters and, you know, and for the empty promises that are being made. I just feel like um, we are acting and we are uh, sort of putting aside the long-term effects of what these decisions could mean for these kids, these coaches and the sport of college football. It seems like it became the wild West, like almost overnight, doesn't it? Um, I mean, you got, like you said, you got coaches leaving all the time. Players are transferring left and right. And it, it, it seems like this has kind of gotten off the rails a little bit quickly I do think a lot of that just has to do with the newness of it. And the, um, I mean, this is the first time in forever that players and coaches are kind of able to, obviously coaches have always been able to control where they want to be at all times and all that stuff. But it feels like the last, this year, especially it's kind of almost become the norm uh, for, for them to look for new opportunities, despite how, how good of a spot they might have at their current program. But mm-hmm. I think in terms of the players thing, the players should be able to move if coaches are and all that kind of stuff. And I think they are, doing so freely now i just I, I tend to think that water always kind kind of finds its level and that i think a few years from now that everything will will never fully settle to what it was because you know you got punished for transferring i don't think you should be punished for transferring but i don't think you're going to see as many people doing that a few years from now just one it's the newness of it it's the ability to do it once i think it becomes a little bit more of the norm i do think it settles it'll never go back to what it was but i don't think we're going to see off seasons like this i don't think this is going to be the new norm i don't think college football is going to turn full-blown nba free agency on us but i I think it's it's going to lean more that way now just because players have more power it just feels like it's headed that direction. And it, does. Know, it, gives, it gives me a bit of pause. And it also, you know, it has effects outside of just the game of college football and even off campus because, you know, one of the names that always gets bounced around, and I don't know why, because his team has the winningest record right now in the NFL, but uh, Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona. And some of the, and there's, oh, he'll never, he's, he's got an NFL team. He doesn't have to recruit anyone. He's got a beautiful house in Scottsdale. And I'm of that thought process as well. But, you see guys getting nine and a half a year. You see guys talking yeah. about 12 a year. You see that type of money and those types of buyouts that come attached to even not succeeding in one of those contracts. Mm-hmm. It looks pretty damn cushy. 
um, to go back to the college ranks. So I, I don't know. I think that there's just some overarching effects that everybody's not necessarily prepared for. And I think we can blame one person and it's Mel Tucker. No, I'm kidding. Um, Mel Tucker. <laughs> Mel, Mel Tucker. Mel, Mel Tucker started the dominoes, man. <laughs> go, go get your money, big fella. But that really was the, the, the relativity point where these coaches who have gone to college football playoffs and do have those types of marks on their resume, um, they could say, hey, if Mel Tucker's getting nine, what do I get? You yeah. know, if 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 Michigan State's paying that guy that, what are you going to pay me? And I think Thanks that a was a, I think State. that was a big I think that was a big moment. Uh, Mel Tucker signing that deal uh, in terms of some of the movement we've seen this off season. But um, you know, make that paper, boo boo. Make that paper. Like yeah. do what you got to do. These guys are. Let's not let's not kid ourselves here. These coaches are not beholden to these players and these programs before their families. And if you can put food on the table for your family to that extent, if you can, um, ensure the generational wealth of your family by moving from Notre Dame to LSU, not to say that that wealth was not already guaranteed at Notre Dame, but if you think you can change the lives of those around you, who am I to sit here and point my finger? So I, I guess before we move on here, because I think we've kind of maxed out this conversation for the most part, I, who are, who do you think makes a college football a playoff, playoff appearance first, Lincoln oh, Riley Christ. or Brian Kelly? Uh, Lincoln Riley. I think I, I really do think that if, if Lincoln Riley, if Lincoln Riley can get this, uh, can get this to be as seamless as possible. Like I said, I would not be surprised to see them there next season. Uh, the PAC 12 is dying to get in. I'm sure the committee is, um, looking for a, for a worthy, uh, candidate out of a power five conference like that. Um, what a storyline it would be if Oklahoma can, you know, continue their rise and maybe keep some guys in town. And then you're looking at a Oklahoma, USC, Alabama, Georgia, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, I think SC gets there sooner than LSU because uh, while LSU did have two years ago, if one of the, if not the greatest season in the history of college football, yeah. it was a flash in the pan. It was a crazy group of guys. You look at that roster, they're all playing on Sundays. So Brian Kelly needs to get that place back to there before mm. you can think about a college football playoff because um, what they did was not a dynasty. What they did was more of a super team uh, that then disbanded. So I think there's way more work to be done. No, no, let me say way more work to be done because there's a ton of work to be done at USC as well. But um, I think that the hill is a bit steeper to climb in the SEC as we've already alluded to. Yeah, I'm with you. I, 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 I think Brian Kelly can get there and I, I think it, he probably will at some point if he, if he's there for nine, 10 years, whatever the contract is, but it seems like Lincoln Riley has the e easier, quicker path. Because yeah. that that just he has to go through the Pac-12 that has well a decent amount of solid football teams. And man, it, it's Oregon, and that's kind of about it. And even Oregon hasn't been Oregon the last couple of years. It, even this, like I know this year they're eleven and one, but we always kind of knew that they weren't the team that they their record necessarily said they were. Mm -hmm. um, that path is just going to be so much easier, and it's going to take one recruiting class for him to get them to be you know, a top five, top 10 team again. And if you're, yeah. if you're, if you're top five, top 10 talented team in the pack 12, you're probably going to win 11 of your 12 games. Yeah. 
Uh, Matt, we got to move it on here to the professional ranks. Uh, Chicago Bears, after what was a welcome respite on Sunday because they played on Thursday, you know, peeling a big one off the Lions uh, on the final play or the final moments of that game. Uh, they get their fourth win. They are perpetually in the hunt. One game out of playoff contention with the uh, Washington football team occupying that seventh and final wild card mm-hmm. spot uh, with five wins. We got to look forward to the week ahead. I believe it's Arizona. What needs yeah. to be said about the Bears here uh, in these coming days? I don't know. You watched? Did you watch Thanksgiving? Did you watch that? Yeah. Any all of it? I mean. Yeah, they won a football game, and I guess that's nice, but like they were still a poorly coached team. The offense still looked kind of lifeless and bad. Like, hell, Joe, they tried to defer on the coin toss after Detroit had already conferred. Like, deferred. like it was just very, like, it's the same. It's just, it's the same situation for me. It's been all year. I, if Justin Fields is playing on Sunday, uh, I haven't seen what the, what his health status is like with the, with the broken or bruised ribs, whatever the hell it was. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's playing, I'm all in watching him and hoping he looks good. And I, I, I mean, I hope that the play calling and the, the offensive game planning is the same that it's been for Andy Dalton the last couple of weeks. Cause it seems like the, the, uh, the playbook's a little bit more open, uh, available for him to do more things. than it's been for Justin, but I'm looking for his development. That's just, that's, I, I, I hate to keep saying it. I hate, hate to keep harping on that point, but as, as long as Matt Nagy's here, it seems like the players have kind of been out on him for a little while now. Um, I, I'm, I'm on to the next one. I, I want to see Justin Fields do well. I want to see, you know, if, if uh, Tevin Jenkins plays and if, if mm-hmm. he's back, if he, if he gets in and, he, and he's healthy and he looks good, great. Larry Borum's been good, very good on the offensive line. Nice. I want to see those young pieces look good. And I want to see who's interested in, in the Bears job in a couple of weeks. And I think I saw, I think it was a CBS article saying, you know, that the Bears are going to be one of the more sought after jobs. They're yeah, they, their cap commitments aren't great, but they're also ones that they're not locked into for terribly long. You're going to see some space open up there. You have your quarterback. You have a division that might see Aaron Rodgers leaving it soon, or at the very least, he's you know already 38 years old. The Bears job is going to be one that's sought after, and I'm interested to see who's going to be the next one that really wants it because it, it, the article that I, I was mentioning had all the big names that you'd want to see as possible targets for the Bears, and I, I want to see yeah. who they want and end up with. Uh, while I'm resigned to the fact that Matt Nagy won't be fired to the offseason, I really think that that's the case. I um, I, I do think, by the way, they were ready to fire him after Thursday, and then it got leaked, and they felt embarrassed. Well, I, I, I truly think that was the case. Well, I really wish that they would have pulled the trigger on that or that they do pull the trigger here before the end of the season because then we can do something that would feel good. We can do something that would um, that would scratch our itch as a Bears fan. We could root for the Bears to win without the worry of Matt yep. Nagy getting a longer leash. And I want to do that. I want to root for this team to sneak into the back end of the playoffs. Not because I think that they can contend, but how much value do you think there is in Justin Fields getting a playoff start somewhere yep. against a really good agree. team? There's a ton of value in that. So fire the freaking guy. Get get the interim going. Um, and And – and let us root for this team. I, I am stuck. I am stuck worried that this team can play well and that that will keep Matt Nagy around because I don't trust management to make the right decision in the first place. I'm still when I say I'm resigned to the fact that they're not going to fire him after, until after the season. That's still with the caveat that they don't fire him. That still exists yeah. in my head. That, that 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 still haunts me. That still exists in my head, yeah. and that still worries me. Um, it's unfortunate. So, because I'm, I'm with you. I'm like 75 percent sure I'm going. They're going to fire him, but. Any other organization in sports, I'd be 
100% sure they were going to fire him or he'd be fired by now. That The fact that this is the Bears and the fact that the McCaskies are who they are, and quite frankly, it seems like they're fairly gullible because they let Nagy and Pace talk, into keep, talk themselves into keeping their jobs last year. Who knows if they'd somehow you know, win a couple games here and sneak into the seven seed as a an eight and nine team like mm-hmm. that that possibility exists that they're like, hey guys we're right there you know justin got us to the playoffs and i was integral in that like you never know and <laughs> until it happens and i'm about like i said about 75 percent sure they're both gonna get fired but the fact that there's a 25 percent part of me that thinks they might not be worries me <laughs> yeah um so fire the guy Win some football Fun. games. Yeah. Get JF one uh, a playoff game. That 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 would be just the most ideal um, series of events for me 100%. as a Bears fan. And I think the most ideal series of events for the Bears as a franchise. I really do I think agree. That. That's that would be the best possible route for the rest of the season to take. Um, moving forward here, Matt, uh, obviously just a million and one deals coming down across big league baseball. Really no news on either side of town. Uh, for the White Sox or the Cubs, but uh, you got some big arms going new places. Max Scherzer mm-hmm. becoming the highest paid player on an average annual value in the history of the sport uh, as he takes his talents to the Mets. Uh, they made a couple other splashes as well. It looks like uh, Marcus Stroman is a name bouncing around the city, but um, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to gauge your thought process on these last few days because these are all deals that are coming through the lens of a work stoppage on Wednesday. Like we're 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 about to there's about to be a lockout. There's about to yeah. be a lockout, and some of these and we might not see baseball next season. Now I don't know if it gets to that point. There's a lot to figure out, and I'm sure that they come to the negotiating table, and hopefully they do make something happen so we can, you know, have baseball because that's. Mm-hmm. Contrary to popular belief, still fun for some of us. Um, I do like watching baseball. People forget that. Uh, um, I, I guess I would just – I don't have a specific question here, but just your uh, taking your temperature here on some of the moves that have been made. Do you think anyone got drastically better? Do you think anyone got drastically worse? Are you surprised by some certain inactivity in certain places? Uh, what really what really catches your eye? Well, my first takeaway is that I, I, I help my, my mother watch my nephew one or two times a week. And uh-huh. my first takeaway is I'm going to buy a baseball and just start putting it into his left <laughs> hand or right hand, whichever one, uh, because I think there's not, not too early of a time to, to get your kids into baseball. If you see what baseball players, and football for. coaches, that's it. At age 37, he's making 43 million a year for the next three years. Uh, that's just insane. Yeah. Good for him. And, you know, it's probably gonna be worth it next year, at least. Um, yeah, but okay. Here's here's the question I posed to all my Mets fan friends at work because yeah. of them there are there are many. Um, does a player like that come in and change the culture, or does a player like that come in and the culture changes him? Because I think that the Mets still have a very toxic culture. I don't think that the clubhouse is a – there's a – we talk about the winning air. I don't think there's a winning air on that clubhouse. Steve Cohen is opening his checkbook to change that. But is he going to get the alchemy of that team right? Yes, adding Max Scherzer immediately makes you better. But you mentioned it, 37 years old. Uh, you're coming off a cautionary tale of Jacob deGrom, who was dominant in his um, however many innings he threw last year. But we didn't see him from July on. Uh, I, I just don't know that – I just don't know that if you pay the price and you add the guy that it guarantees you anything because it doesn't. No, it doesn't guarantee anything, but I think it is a great move for the Mets if you want to start establishing that winning culture. The way to do that is by by bringing in guys who have been there before and done that. I I think they do have a a talented, younger team that needs probably the guys that can push them in the right direction. I don't think there's anybody 
more competitive that wants to win more than Max Scherzer, but he's also only a guy that's going to be able to go out there one out of every five days. And he's probably not going to be a guy that pitches a full season for you. But uh, I think if you have the money and it was a short-term deal, that, that was that was a really, really good move for them to go out and get. I like the other moves they've made, made as well. I think Starling Marte is a really nice fit. Eduardo Escobar, honestly, I, I think he might actually be an even better fit for them than Javi Baez because what Javi Baez is getting from the Tigers is I – I like him. He's an exciting player. He's not, uh, I don't think he's a six year, $150 million player. I, I, I just, I don't think he's the focal point of a team and that's what he wanted to be paid like. And that's fine. I think Eduardo Escobar gives them just as much for, you know, a much more efficient deal. Um, I'm a little bit surprised by the, by the lack of doing anything from the White Sox, but Knowing who their owner is, I'm not going to say cheap because I don't want to get that. Well, I, they haven't spent anything. I, I do think Jerry Reinsdorf is not all that interested in throwing around a nine-figure contract when he doesn't know what the landscape of baseball is going to look like in three days. And is that going to yeah. cost him to miss out on some guys? Yeah. But at the same time, Marcus Simeon, who's 31 years old, is going to be 32 on opening day, getting a seven-year deal when he's really just had kind of two good years in his career. I don't hate passing up on that. Corey Seager yeah, got 10 years, $32.5 million, oddly enough, from the same team. Um, the the one that was a little weird to me, that uh, it seemed like Robbie Ray, five years, 115 from the Mariners, was a very acceptable, fair offer. That wasn't one that, like, oh, man, he got paid. That seemed like one the Sox probably could have stepped up and gotten in on. But at the same time, Robbie Ray's two years removed from being one of the worst pitchers in baseball. So I, yeah. something happened with him last year and he clicked, but he did in a contract. It's, a bit of, it's, it's panic buying. It's a Black yeah. Friday deals and you just can't, you just can't miss the rebate type thing. I don't um, think the, the Sox are a, a Rick Hahn, especially since he does have a little bit more limited budget, albeit I, the Sox are going to have probably their biggest payroll they've ever had. And it'll be one of the bigger ones at baseball next year. I think with what they have in the system right now is probably going to be a little bit more keen to, go the trade route and try and bring in the perfect guy, the guy that he wants and not just the guys that are available to sign the contracts. I do think Max Scherzer would have been a great fit that, but $43 million a year and probably, excuse me, a, a, an owner in Steve Cohen who would have just kept going up because he wanted Max Scherzer. Jerry Reinsdorf is never going to outbid Steve Cohen. That's just, that's, a, that's Max a fact Scherzer did not want to be a Met to his own admission. But at a certain point, yeah, you just like, got to okay, put your yeah, uniform on and go out there and throw the ball. <laughs> it's $43 million a year. I'll, I'll take it. He's going to go uh, there. He's going to be there. He probably would have rather stayed at West. But I think the Sox are going to – I think the Sox are going to do some things. I think they're going to go out and probably make a few more trade deals than they are free agent signings. And the guy who I would really, really like them to go out and get in Chris Taylor is still out there. I think he'd be a really good fit for this, for this team. He can play second base. He can play the outfield. But, like – I think the biggest need for them right now is a starting pitcher and a second baseman. Nick Castellanos, I know everybody keeps saying they want. He's a very good player, all that. I, I like him a lot. They don't necessarily need a right fielder right now. They have two guys in Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets who are – one's a lefty, one's a righty, who seem like they can platoon pretty darn well and give you quite a bit of production from that right field spot. They, they, they need to add a second baseman. They need to add a starting pitcher. I, I don't necessarily know who they are, but I think it – Probably seems like now it's safe to say it's going to come from the trade market unless they come out of nowhere and pay Marcus Stroman. Uh, we do have breaking news on the north side. The Cubs, two-year deal, $13 million with Jan Gomes. Yeah, that, that one's weird because um, they're paying a catcher quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know. Wilson Contreras just tweeted a whole bunch of airplane emojis. Like he's leaving? Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah. maybe they are trading Wilson Contreras. Uh, we uh, are – We are – we are tracking 
emojis here on the Moose and Runes podcast. That's, hey, that's what we, hey, we, we're an NBA free agency podcast sometimes. A lot of times deals get broken via emoji. A, uh, a couple of things that stood out to me, just non-Chicago-centric. Uh, the Yankees inactivity, uh, a team that needs to add arms, a team that needs to add lefty bats, a team that needs to lock up Anthony Rizzo. Um, they got a lot of work to do, and they haven't done any of it. And I'm also not surprised, but I think it's extremely notable how far back of a step the Dodgers are taking. They've let a lot of guys walk here. Uh, Corey Seager, Scherzer, so on and mm-hmm. so forth. The roster is going to look a lot less dominant than, than, it, than it did a year ago. But yes, you still do have big arms. You still do have big names. Um, you're still going to be a, a contender in the NL. It's just I feel like they've come back to the pack a little bit. They have a little bit. They also have a great prospect pool to deal from if they want to go yeah. the trade route as well. And you know what? Owners, they... They got their World Series a year, you know, two years ago, so whatever, not, not this yeah. year, but last year. So they bought themselves a little bit of leeway there that, you know, if they say, we got a couple guys, we're going to let them walk. I, Corey Seager has, has, was very good last year. He's a very good baseball player. He also is a 27-year-old with back problems. So that's someone that they might have just said, you know what, 10 years, 32 and a half, like, go, that's fine. They might be in the same, a, a similar boat to the White Sox and that they don't want to spend a whole bunch of money on – just anyone before there's a lockout, before you know what the landscape looks uh, looks like for next year and going forward. So their their process might just be, you know what, we're still pretty darn good. We still got some talented guys to replace these guys. We're still probably going to win this division next year. Let's take a step back. This might be our offseason where we're not quite as active. And then next year, we're going to have a whole bunch of money to go spend on whoever the hell we want. Uh, Matt, as we always see here, say here on the Moose and Runes podcast, we are a golf podcast and we are true. a Tiger podcast. Tiger Woods uh, met with the media both on Monday in a sit down with Golf Digest and then on Tuesday uh, as the tournament host of the Zozo uh, the, or Hero World Challenge. Excuse me. Um, and I think some interesting things were said. I think that uh, it is a, an admission uh, to where he's at with his health and in his career. And, man, we've talked about this a million times before, that he seems at peace, he seems this, he seems that. But um, just hearing him say, and I think the most jarring thing to me was he called the Masters, he said, I got that last major. Um, And that really stuck out to me as his recognition that he's not going to be competitive in major championships again. Um, He did say that he would like to work back to full health and he would like to play limited tour schedule, never full time. That has been the case since all of the back injuries as is. Maybe we see him play two elevated events. uh, Let's call it Jack's place. Let's call it the players and Hmm. the four majors every year. And uh, I think that's, that's what we get out of Tiger Woods over the next maybe half decade until it kind of even, um, dials back from there but uh it was great to see tiger uh sort of not sort of he avoided and deflected any um and any questions regarding the accident back in february and i mean i'll raise my hand i have no interest in why i have no interest in what was going on i have no interest in what went wrong i'm simply interested that um Tiger Woods seems to be an individual um, that is once again aware of peace with everything. He seems at peace, but he's also aware of his mortality. Mm -hmm. Um, He's also aware of his limitations. And uh, 
it's just uh, it's good to see Tiger again. What he whether he's uh, speaking confidence into his game or into his fans or into the future. Uh, again, a little bit lost on me. Um, I, I think that it's just great to see Tiger again. Yeah, it's it's nice to see him in front of the camera, talking to people, walking like we've seen him the last couple of weeks, hitting golf balls like we saw in that one video that went viral. Like it's nice to see him back, and it's everything he said kind of seems like exactly what you thought he'd say after this. And he's going to be on a little bit more of a limited schedule than maybe he even was in the past, but it's not like we saw him every week. Anyways, he was kind of only playing one tournament a month or so and gearing up for majors. And that's probably what he's going to keep doing, but it just, it, it seems very on brand for what we've seen from him the last two years. Just a guy who is very aware of what he is now aware of what he still thinks he probably can be if he picks and chooses the right spots and that's a winner on tour but aware of what he is aware of what he can be and kind of at peace that you know he is what he yeah. is yeah yeah and I, I don't know that he i don't know that he has the confidence in himself just yet and i don't know that he ever will again because we're talking about about a guy who nine months ago flipped a car and mangled his leg, let alone whatever other injuries he sustained that we were unaware of. He had multiple compound fractures in that right leg. Um, The fact that he's walking nine months later is amazing. Uh, He said that the possibility in the days after the surgeries of amputation was not off the table. I I just think that it's going to take a long time for Tiger to even have the stomach to go out there and try and tee it up against a Dustin Johnson, a Brooks Kepka, a uh-huh. Colin Morikawa, the best in the world. I don't think he sees himself as the best in the world, and I don't know that he will again. Uh, back when he got to playing and back when he got healthy and back when he won the Masters, I think he was in that place again, mentally more than anything else. He changed his game physically. He's always shown the ability to alter his physical game, to change his swing, to ask different things of his body, whether those are back limitations or uh, or a, a knee surgery and having to change the way he swings because of the knee and the leg he will be able to do whatever he needs to do physically to move the ball around a golf course. I just don't know that he believes that he can be long enough, that he can go four days with the best in the world on the hardest golf courses that the game has to offer. I I don't know that he'll ever get back to that place in his head. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, I think that's, that's very well said. And I, he he probably can't and probably knows that, but I think once he's, I don't think Tiger Woods is ever going to take, a course for a tournament he's ever going to go to Augusta without and he might not have that belief in his head now but it's hard for me to believe him committing to playing the Masters and at least in these next couple years and putting his tee putting it putting a ball on a tee off one hitting one down the middle and be like you know what I can win this tournament he's never going to have that I don't think that thought's ever going to escape him when he's teeing up he's just that kind of guy there is no basis behind this following statement, but I think the next time we see Tiger is this tournament next year. I think the Hero World Challenge Hero World next Challenge. year, his tournament will be the first time that we see him uh, return to actual PGA Tour action. I just don't have any hope. I don't have any hopes of seeing him this year and because I, I just don't think that's realistic. It, with him saying that he's not even at 50%. Of no, I, I, I would health. agree. I would yeah. agree. I think it would take a whole lot in order for him to – a whole lot to go right and – that miracle is not the right word, but just everything to go absolutely perfect in terms of rehabbing and all that kind of stuff for him to be ready to play yeah. at any point this year. So I'm with you. This tournament, his tournament next year is probably the, the realistic 
starting point for him. Uh, we got to off, offer up some locks of the week before we say goodbye, Matthew. Uh, it is officially Fade Musso season. I have gone cold over the last three weeks, back down to seven and five. You are eight and four after a win on what you uh, so eloquently put in the pre-show meeting as Brian Kelly's final win as Notre Dame's head coach. Yep. Uh, that was a great play. I gave you, what did I give you? You had Ohio State. I had Ohio State, so. Whoops. That, that's how that goes. I, hey, I was on them too, and if you didn't pick them, I actually might have taken them as my luck as well. So you're not uh, alone in that one, buddy. Uh, why, don't, why don't you lead us off here uh, with your lock of the week, NFL Week 13, college football, conference championship week. Where are you taking us? I was lo- I was looking, honestly, my original thought was fade the Bears. At, at those, uh, they're, seven, they're getting seven and a half against the Cardinals, but I, I still don't know Kyler's health and that ankle, and even if he is back, how he's going to be feeling, all that kind of stuff. And I just I felt like I wanted to stay away from that because who the hell knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am going to go with the under in the SEC championship game, under 50 and a half. Um, Georgia's defense has been elite all season. They've been keeping mm-hmm. games under that total a lot. The only reason they've gone over it sometimes is because their offense breaks out, and I don't think they're necessarily going to put up 40 points against Alabama on, uh, on Saturday. I do think they're going to beat Alabama. I do think Alabama's going to tr- going to struggle to score against Georgia's defense. We saw them struggle quite a bit with Auburn. Um, and, and quite honestly, it, a few points throughout this season, they've, they've struggled against some pretty good competition or, you know, good SEC competition, I should say. Um, and I think Georgia's the best they're going to see. I, I think also Alabama's defense is not going to allow, you know, 40, 35 points. I see Georgia winning something like 27 to 10. Um, So I'm going to take the under in that game, under 50 and a half in Georgia, Alabama. I like that one. I'm taking a total as well. I'm going Vegas, Washington, under 49 and a half. Uh, The the Raiders have recommitted to running the ball. It looked like last week uh, it was Josh Jacobs' heaviest workload because, I mean, they just don't have a deep threat to stretch the field. Um, I think they kind of see the writing on the wall as well of the season. Interim head coach, so much has happened to that team. Uh, I think that they're going to try and win this game by running the ball. And then Washington on Monday night, they win a low-scoring game. It's a short week. You get one less day of preparation. Uh, That defense looks really good in Washington. It looks like it does defense, look a lot better. It looks like the defense that they were um, kind of advertised to be preseason. Um, but here we are with them rounding into form at the right time. So I think they hold Vegas to, I mean, under 20 points. And I just don't see Washington scoring 30. So I like that one under 49 and a half. Look at us. Just a couple of sharps taking unders. That's there you just go. what we do. That's you got to do, do it. You got to get back on the horse uh, and you got to get back in the win column, at least me uh, in terms of some of the recent struggles that we've had. Matt, before we say goodbye, I would be remiss if I did not tip my cap to the black and white. The right? Fenwick Friars, state champions, and it feels damn good to say first time in the history of the school. Uh, Friar Pride takes on the ultimate meaning with the boys leading their way to a 5A state title over Kankakee. Uh, the Rooney family with their fingerprints all over this one once again. TJR, Brian, a big part of that success. We want to send our thanks and our love to everybody that had their hands on this state championship trophy. Matt, you were in DeKalb for the day of. Uh, Boots on the ground. Uh, give me boots on the ground. Give me an idea of how it was, how it felt, and you know just just what Friar Nation is feeling right now. Man, it was the, the turnout there is as you could probably expect. Not you know it, it only being an hour away from Chicago and, and how 
how well the Fenwick community seems to travel. The turnout was absolutely awesome. The amount of alumni people you haven't seen in forever that, you know, all met up in DeKalb the day, a couple of days after Thanksgiving to watch that game was, was, was special to see. And I think down on the sideline, talking to my dad, talking to my brother, seeing what players were saying after the game, they, they felt that too. The, the Fenwick community showed out huge. Um, so that was, was awesome. Um, the game was a lot of fun. It was it was weird. Like usually with those game, those situations, like <laughs> things haven't gone well for Fenwick, or they've been a close game. Like man, that one was kind of never in doubt. Like it, Fenwick came out and punched him in the mouth right away. Kankakee tried to come back a little bit, but was never really able to to consistently move the ball or stop Fenwick's offense. Um, it, it's it's a special time and place to you know see where Fenwick's come from. You know just however long ago not long ago when we were there i mean sniffing a state championship was never even a thought um now seeing where they're at it's 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 really special and cool to see and i don't know how much of the the games you got to actually watch whether it was on youtube or tv or wcau whatever their offense was absolutely i watched every snap their offense was so fun to watch website Um, it was their offense so much fun to watch i mean they you had the the quarter four d1 players with one probably another fifth you know fringe guy you have a running back that could go play d3 that you know rushed for 200 yards in a state championship game it was just they're a fun team to watch man they're they're a lot of fun and i think they're heading in the right direction and obviously recruiting in the catholic league um is is always a challenge but they've been doing it the last few years and they got got them this class so let's let's keep the momentum going I, i trust in everybody they got running the show over there Put it in the rafters. The Friars are at the top of the heap. And with that, we say thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Moose and Ruins podcast, episode 231. A lot happening in the world of sports. We appreciate you guys spending the time with us to break it all down. Matt, do you have any parting words on any of the topics covered here on Moose and Ruins 231? Uh, Go hire Marcus Freeman. I can tell final. That's my final word. And with that, we will say goodbye to the Moose and Moons podcast for Matt. I am Joe. We'll check in with you guys next week. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. <laughs> Chicken on the state was phenomenal. <laughs>